We'll read Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a great company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Chapter 49 and up to verse 1 to verse 28. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. 
assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall, have not, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for the ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, 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 a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers." Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. We have an amazing passage to look at. Two chapters of Genesis tonight, um, describing events 3,700 years ago and full of promises 
prophecies and surprises. I wonder if you noticed that as we read. Many surprises here. And yet these chapters set the course for the rest of Bible history, or the rest of human history, actually. There are promises here that have been observably fulfilled in history since this point. We won't be able to cover all of them, but the biggest ones remain massively relevant to us today. So if you're sitting here wondering, can I really trust the God of the Bible? And that's a question whether you're looking into Christian things tonight or you've been faithfully serving the Lord for decades, like Jacob that we talked about last week. Wherever we are on the journey of faith, every day's question is, will I trust what God says? And there's plenty tonight to help us in that. But if we are going to benefit, we need God's help. So let me lead us in prayer before we dive in. Our Father in heaven, you are from everlasting to everlasting. You know the end from the beginning. You don't need anyone to give you advice. You speak and worlds form. You speak and history takes the shape you want. You speak and people change. And so we do pray tonight that as we study your words, you would speak to us and shape us by your word. We pray you'd grow us in your, our trust of you, the mighty, gracious God. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, the Lion of Judah. Amen. Well, we're going to get to those surprises in just a moment. We've got three surprises tonight to look at. But just before we do, you'll see there's an outline on the back of the service sheet. And I've got a question at the top, which we'll begin with, which is this. Who on earth can we rely on to lead us back to the good times? Who on earth can we rely on to lead us back to the good times? I think that's a pretty relevant question in the UK today. In today's political climate, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we have a crisis of leadership. Pundits from across the political spectrum, they're expressing huge doubts about the candidates in the Tory leadership contest. And then those same commentators point out that actually many people find Jeremy Corbyn equally unpalatable. So who on earth can we rely on? to lead us back to the good times. It's an urgent question in Britain today. And alongside that comes the question, who would we trust to make that choice? Who would we trust to choose the right leader? I mean, lots of people from conversations I have feel quite uneasy that just 160,000 Conservative Party members, who are mostly white, mostly rich, mostly middle class or above, they're going to have the decisive choice about the next prime minister. But if you don't like that idea, well, who would you trust? Parliament? They've had three years failing to unite around a leader. The nation as a whole? Well, it was our, it was our choice to produce a hung parliament and our referendum that's caused the confusion in the first place. Who on earth can we rely on to lead us back to good times? And who would we trust to make that choice? The story of the Bible, right from the first book in Genesis, is, is that it's not just Britain in the 21st century that's in a mess. Actually, the whole world, 
All of humanity is in a mess. We are a long way from the good times, from, from the good creation that God originally made. We're alienated from God, our creator. We're alienated from one another, and we use and abuse God's creation. And we face all the consequences of those three things. So actually, we don't need a Brexit rescue plan. We need a global rescue plan, something that will get us right with God as well as our neighbors. That's the kind of big Bible picture. And in this book of Genesis, God has been making promises about his commitment to bring that rescue. And he's going to do it through one particular family, Abraham's family. And then all through this term, in the kind of Joseph part of the narrative, as we zoom in on this family, the sons of Jacob, we've seen how important a leader is in that rescue plan. So God's people and the nations will be blessed through God's chosen leader. And now we're coming to the end of that kind of epic Genesis story. And these closing chapters, last week, this week, next week, they, they can see like, seem a bit like the kind of closing scenes of, I don't know, the Lord of the Rings or a kind of epic story, a big trilogy of maybe Marvel superhero films. Or if you're more sophisticated than that, it can be like, you can think it's like the kind of final act of a Shakespearean comedy, kind of tying up all the loose ends, just the last chance to say goodbye to the characters and everyone get married to each other. And it, it, if it was Scooby-Doo, everyone would be laughing hysterically, kind of, oh, it's all fixed then. Wonderful. Everything sorted. Last week, we saw Jacob reunited with his lost son. The family are back together. This week, in chapter 48, we see, having lived to a ripe old age, we see him holding his grandchildren in his arms and blessing them happily ever after. In chapter 49, we see all the sons around the bed and him giving a specific word to each one. Seems like happily ever after. But actually, when you look at the detail of the chapters, it's not at all that simple. We must not let our eyes kind of glaze over and think this is the end of the kind of trilogy of films. This is just the chance to everyone say goodbye. It's not really important. Actually, there are a number of shocking surprises in these chapters. For a start, in chapter 49, did you notice some of those blessings were, in fact, Curses, judgments, that's a surprise, and we'll get there. Even in chapter 48, the way the blessings happen there is really quite shocking. And as we build up three big surprises tonight, we're going to see these chapters driving us forward, forward to the actual leader who can take us back to the good times. See, this isn't the end of the story in Genesis 49. Just look at chapter 49, verse 1, if you want proof that this isn't the end of the story. We're on page 42, if you've closed your Bibles. Chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. This is actually a section of trailers for what's to come, spoilers, if you will, of what's to come. The eternal God, who knows the end from the beginning, is alerting us here to his future plans, the plans beyond Genesis. And God's future plans will involve a greater king than Joseph, 
a leader who can and will bring people from all nations back to the good times with God. But before we get to that leader in chapter 49, we need 48 to to prepare the ground for us a bit. So let's dive into chapter 48, and this is point one on the handout. God freely chooses where blessing will come. God freely chooses where blessing will come. Now, we won't spend ages in chapter 48, but it is a very moving scene. You can see from verse 1 that Joseph hears that the now very old Jacob is ill, and so he packs the grandkids into his chariot, and they go and see their papa for what's going to be the last time for them. And it turns out this isn't just a hospital goodbye. Actually, what we get in chapter 48 is an adoption ceremony. You see, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're the two children that Joseph had in Egypt. That's the wrong place for this family. And he had them with his Egyptian wife, Asenath, who was from the wrong people. And Joseph's father-in-law was from the wrong priesthood. In fact, Manasseh's name actually means, God has made me forget my father's house. These two children are real outsiders to the promise, to the family of promise. And yet, to these half-Egyptian children, Jacob passes on the most extraordinary blessing. He adopts them as full sons of his. Just look at verse 5 if you want to see the point. Chapter 48, verse 5, where Jacob says to Joseph, And now your two sons who were born, notice to you, in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben, that's the firstborn, and Simeon are, that's the secondborn. Joseph's sons are adopted. They're fully adopted by Jacob into the family, as much tribes of Israel as Reuben and Simeon. It's a really big deal, this. And we mustn't think this is just kind of Jacob giving some nice soppy words, just because it's kind of an old grandma, a grandpa just talking for himself. No, here Jacob is acting as a mouthpiece for God, the same in chapter 49. That's why in verses 3 and 4 we get a reminder that God himself appeared to Jacob. So this scene is about where God's blessing is going to go next. It's about God's choice of where the promised blessing will flow. Just as Abraham passed on the blessing to Isaac, that was God's choice. And Isaac passed it on to Jacob, that was God's choice. Or so now, Jacob's passing it on to Ephraim and Manasseh. Again, God's choice. We need to clock that it's a free choice of God. He didn't have to adopt these two half-Egyptian children into his family like this. Actually, Jacob had a lot of grandchildren by this point, but only these two are promoted in this way, adopted as full tribal heads like the other brothers of Joseph. In fact, if you look at verse 6, it even points out that Joseph's future children won't get this blessing. I'll read from the end of verse 5. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are, 
and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers, as in Ephraim and Manasseh, in their inheritance. So of all those, that crowd of grandkids, even out of all of Joseph's children, these ones are chosen for blessing. God's free choice to adopt. Maybe all that sounds a bit subtle and complicated and maybe not convinced that this is really drawing attention to God's free choice. But in case we missed the point, from verse 13 onwards, it really starts to drive home the point that God is free to choose. Because for the second half of chapter 48, we get a surprising promotion of the secondborn over the firstborn. So normally the firstborn would traditionally get the kind of best portion of their father's inheritance. And you can see that Joseph, in verse 13, is keen to get this right. And so he, he lines up um, Manasseh on one side and Ephraim on the other side, so that as he, as he directs them to Isaac, it's definitely going to be the case that Isaac puts his right hand on the firstborn, Manasseh. So he gets the bumper blessing. And so what happens? Verse 14, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim. And then his left hand on the head of Manasseh. It's a really shocking moment. The narrator wants us to notice it. Laid it on the head of verse 14 of Ephraim, who was the younger, and then the left hand on Manasseh, who was the firstborn. It's a real shocker. There's a moment at the end of the long Lord of the Rings trilogy where King Aragorn is about to be finally crowned. We know for sure he's the man. After all, if you've sat through the films, for a long time he's been looking dashing and kingly. He's been winning battles. He's from the right bloodline. It's just really clear that he's the king in waiting. And just imagine if the person holding the crown walked along and walked past him as the mouths drop and, I don't know, put it on Samwise Gamgee. Ephraim gets the blessing. It's a real surprise. It's such a surprising moment that Joseph tries to intervene in his father's adoption ceremony and blessing ceremony. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. This is clearly not going the way Joseph would have chosen humanly. It's clearly not simple human bloodline or hereditary inheritance. But it is not a mistake. This is God making a free choice to bless the younger. Verse 19, his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so, verse 20, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. This is our first of three really big surprises tonight. It's adoption by God's free grace, not by human choice or by birth. 
And of course, if you know the story of Genesis, this is, this is far from the first time this has happened. Actually, again and again in this kind of foundational book of the Bible, God has chosen in each generation where his blessing goes. He keeps showing it's not earned or won or automatic or merely in the power of human choice. So God freely chose to bless Abraham in a world of rebellion. Abraham's only qualification to receive a promise of thousands of or countless descendants was a barren wife. God just chose him. And then when Abraham was going to pass his blessing on to the next generation, he tried to force the issue with Ishmael. That would have been his choice. But God freely chose Isaac instead. Then when Isaac wanted to pass the blessing on to Esau, the firstborn, his favorite, well, actually, the blessing ended up with Jacob, God's free choice. Indeed, even before they were born, there was a promise that the younger would be served by the older. And now here again, Ephraim, the younger chosen before the older. Again, that kind of normal expectation is just, it's just confounded. Joseph's preference is confounded. It's not his choice. Where God's blessing goes is really up to God. Time and time again we're shown it. God freely chooses where blessing will come. And I wonder if the reason why the first book of the Bible labors that point so repeatedly is that we find it very hard to accept. We like to think that we choose our way to God, or we think our way to God, or we work our way to God's blessing. But the reality is, he must come to us. It's his choice to bless us, his choice to adopt us first. John's Gospel puts it like this, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's adoption. Who were born, listen to this, not of blood, that's the line of inheritance, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Fundamentally, God's gracious choice to adopt. Now, this idea that is sometimes called this doctrine of election, that's the technical term, it's not always a popular idea. We'd much prefer to believe that the universe revolves around our choices rather than God's. And of course, this doesn't mean we have no responsibility for using our choices wisely. But ultimately, God does work through all of our choices to bring about his choice. His purpose, his plans. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, when Paul's trying to explain why not all Jewish people have trusted in Jesus and been saved, with a heavy heart and a clear mind, he turns to Genesis, to these stories, to show that God's always made it clear that he will choose where he blesses. He shows mercy where he shows mercy. Hang on, hang on, we say. Surely that's not fair. 
I mean, how dare God choose some people over other people? Prefer some people to others? How is it fair that that those two boys were promoted over the other grandkids? How is it fair that Ephraim is promoted over Manasseh? Or much closer to home and much more painfully, how is it fair that God chooses other people's family members, gives them faith to trust in Jesus, but not mine? How's it that God hasn't yet brought a friend I grew up with and I dearly love, but hasn't yet brought him to faith? Why was it when I was at university, he he chose to save a student next door, they became a Christian, and no one in my house share did? How's it fair? I think to answer that, we need to head to our second point. Because the reality is, we'll always have problems with God's free choice if we believe that actually deep down we deserve blessing. See, if we think the good life is something we should all have coming our way by rights, if we think kind of God owes us blessing, because we're not that bad, we're better than other people, whatever it is, we'll always find it outrageous when God chooses some over others. But the actual reality is that no one deserves blessing. Not one of us does. And this is our second point. This family, like all of us, do not deserve blessing, but need saving. This family, like all of us, do not deserve blessing, but need saving. Again, we've seen this all the way through our series in Genesis. Actually, all the way from the start of Genesis. So Abraham, he didn't deserve the blessing he got. He actually tried to protect himself by pawning off his wife to Pharaoh, pretending she was his sister to save his skin. He didn't deserve the blessing. Jacob didn't deserve the blessing. He cheated his brother. And his sons don't deserve the blessing. We've seen plenty of that this series. This is a dysfunctional and messy family. And so that brings us to chapter 49 and our second big surprise Here we need to kind of get our imaginations going again. So picture the scene. Papa Jacob is in the bed. He's extremely elderly. He's about to die. And he gathers the family round to provide blessings and prophecies about what's going to happen to each of them and their tribes in the future. He is speaking as God's prophetic mouthpiece. And if you look at the summary in verse 28, he's blessing each of them with the blessing suitable to him. So let's listen in and see what a suitable blessing would sound like in this kind of beautiful, moving family scene. And as I read from the start, see if you can spot the surprise when it comes. Verse 2. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Can you imagine the awkward silence in the room at that moment? It's quite a gear change, isn't it, in verse 4? Suddenly this warm family farewell, it has become more like the boardroom of Alan Sugar. Reuben, you're fired. 
the firstborn blessings not coming in your direction. Why? Well, because back in chapter 35, he slept with his father's concubine. He's forfeited the right to firstborn blessing. And so the blessing that's suitable for him is actually a curse. Reuben, you're fired. So, one down. And I guess at that point, Simeon, standing next to him in order, he's probably feeling quite excited. Wow, I'm going to be the firstborn now. I'm going to get the prime inheritance. Blessing is coming my way. So verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Oh, okay, thanks, Simeon. We're going to have to share the firstborn inheritance. Fair enough. I'm sure there's lots to go around. I wonder what we're going to get. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, and their wrath, for it's cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Cursed, divided, scattered. Those are not good words to hear. I mean, they're not good words to hear from Grandpa Jacob when you're hoping for blessing and inheritance. In the bigger picture of Genesis, they're really not good words to hear. They're the words that have been heard in Eden, curse, and Babel, scattered. This is judgment falling. This time it's what happened in chapter 34. They, they, um, their sister Dinah was raped and they went on a killing rampage in revenge. They plundered a whole city. Simeon and Levi, you're fired. You don't deserve blessing, you deserve curse. Three down. The first three brothers have forfeited their right to blessing. Is that unfair? No. That actually is justice. That is fair. That's God treating people as they deserve. You see, when God freely chose to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh in chapter 48, when Jacob said to them, you will be given the blessings as Reuben and Simeon, i.e. the firstborn and secondborn blessings, well, that was all in the background that they've already forfeited their places. If you're taking notes, you can look at 1 Chronicles 5, which is explicit on this. The point is no one deserved that firstborn blessing. Against this background of sin and failure, of the designated inheritors forfeiting their blessing, against that backdrop, well, in his kindness, God chooses to adopt Ephraim and Manasseh. You can't say it's unfair if everyone deserved to miss out. And actually, if you look through the history of this family, whether you go backwards through Genesis so far or onwards into the rest of the Bible, into Exodus or Judges, sin and failure run all the way through. Even here, they don't, not all the blessings sound as bad as the first three, but just look at some of them. Verse 17, Dan will be a serpent, a viper. Or verse 27, that nice young lad, Benjamin, 
He seems so quiet, but actually he's a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey, in the evening dividing the spoil. Simple fact is, across the, this, across the board, this family don't deserve blessing any more than any other family. My family. Actually, when Jacob is going around announcing these blessings and curses, in verse 18, he, he just cries out halfway through, verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Actually, this family needs saving, not deserves blessing. That's surprise too. This is far from happily ever after. It's far from kind of laughs and smiles and slaps on the back. It's, you all deserve curse. Just think of what the 11 did to Joseph. And that is the same as what's been happening ever since Adam's family got started. Humanity alienated from God and each other, wherever you look. So coming back to that issue of not liking God's choice, I wonder if we can see that we might not actually have the right to question where God chooses to bless. Just think about it, as Reuben and Simeon watch the tribe of Ephraim grow into this large, prosperous, dominant tribe over the years. And you can read through Bible history, and that is what happens. That's why the northern kingdom is called Ephraim, for short, because they're so big. Well, they couldn't say, well, that's not fair, because they forfeited their rights. It's actually amazing God blesses anyone. He's going above and beyond what's just. Pure kindness that God adopts anyone as children into his family. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on those who have compassion. Praise God there's any blessing at all. You see, God's choice, God's free choice, rather than being something embarrassing or something we shouldn't like, is actually the only hope the world has. Because what's fair would be judgment. It's a wonderful thing. God is determined to bless. You see it all the way through Genesis. When Adam sins, God doesn't stop. He's determined to bless. When Noah sins, even after a fresh start, God doesn't stop. He's determined to bless. When Abraham and his children keep sinning, God doesn't stop. He's determined to bless. But the final thing we need to see and this will bring us back to where we started, is that God's determination to bless centers on a leader. It's high time we return to that opening question. Who can lead us back to the good times? And we're going to see that God's free choice looms large again. It's God's choice. He doesn't just choose who he blesses. He chooses the leader through whom that blessing will come. Actually, the Joseph story, all this term, has already made that clear, hasn't it? God chose Joseph, and whatever people threw at him, he ended up being the ruler through whom God rescued. So let's head into point three and our final surprise. God's determined to bless the nations through the king he has chosen. And to get our heads around this, we need to think about the next character around the bed. And our final big surprise, how do you think, it's Judah, is the next person, how do you think he might be feeling after verses 2 to 7? 
This bedroom has become the boardroom. Three brothers are down. Three times he's basically heard, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. And he's next. The first brother was fired for sexual sin. That was Reuben's problem. And Judah knows that he has slept around with multiple women. He knows that he had a one-night stand with his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking she was a cult prostitute. He's no more deserving than Reuben. Simeon and Levi, they were fired for their violent reaction to sexual sin. What did Judah do when he found out that Tamar was pregnant, not realizing it was his fault, he said, bring her out and let her be burned. He's not exactly the moral star of the show, is he? Sure, over the last few chapters, we have seen Judah growing. He's a real story of what God's grace can do in someone. He's growing in maturity and courage. But let's be really clear. He, he deserves judgment for his past sins just as much as the first three and so again, imagine the surprise in the room when Jacob turns to Judah and says these words, verse 8, Judah, here he goes, here it, here it comes, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. What? <laughs> Say What? Your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And actually, not just the family, including Joseph, the very blessed Joseph, including him will bow to this Judah tribe, but not just the family, but all nations, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, that is, the nations, another huge shock. God's made another free choice. He's chosen Judah. I think that choice is even more of a surprise if you know the story of Joseph. I puzzled on this for a long time in preparation. We've been following this story where Joseph is the chosen man. You get to the end and the first three brothers are ruled out. And I'm sure people in the room are thinking, well, I know how this story ends. Eleven people Jacob doesn't really like, and then Joseph is the choice. But actually, at this moment, God surprises us. He's made his own choice again, confounding expectations. Judah is where my king will come from. It's even the language that was used in Joseph's dreams. Do you remember that verse 8? Your father's son shall bow down before you. That reminds me of Joseph's dreams. And he'll be a blessing to nations. To him will be the obedience of the peoples. See, at this point in Bible history, God is providing a spoiler, a pointer, a massive signpost, a, an X marks the spot. If you want to know what leader I've chosen... Well, it's not Joseph, actually. It's going to be from the tribe of Judah. Look there. That's where blessing to the nations will come. And so as you read on in the Bible story, it's no surprise. It is, it's extraordinary. It's supernatural. It's amazing. But it's not actually a surprise when King David, who comes from the line of Judah, 
ends up having the royal family permanently for God's people, even though the first king was Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel are actually all foreshadowed here. More importantly than that, it's not a surprise, even though it is supernatural and extraordinary and amazing, when Jesus Christ comes along from the tribe of Judah and proves to be a king who does receive the obedience of nations, people from all over the world. That's what was going on in our Acts series. The whole book of Acts foreshadowed here extraordinary. This is 3,700 years ago. It's quite something, isn't it? We're in an age where words are becoming very, very cheap, aren't they? Fake news, easy lies, cheap promises that everyone knows that can't be fulfilled. But there is someone here you can trust, whose promises, whose words you can trust. A God whose words prove true, not just next month or next year if he's lucky, but next decade, next century, next millennium. You see, whether you actually like the idea that God chooses, chooses who to save, chooses who to lead, it's not actually that relevant whether we like it, because he does. He has. He told us early, and he's proved it ever since. Whether I like the fact that Jesus Christ is the doorway to permanent blessing, the doorway to the good life in this world, whether I like that or not, it doesn't actually matter. It's not going to change God's choice. Joseph didn't like it when his sons got switched around. didn't change the choice. See, that's why I said at the start of the talk, that this chapter is not tying up the loose ends. It's not kind of the end of the trilogy. It's more like the end of the first film or book in a series. It's pointing us ahead, giving us spoilers, clues. When Jacob says, verse 18, I wait for your salvation, I think he means it. I wait for the promises to come true. I wait for the leader who will bring this blessing about. And here we sit today, as I close, we're We're so much further on in God's plan. We're the other side of seeing loads of these prophecies fulfilled, both the small ones, which we haven't had time for, and this massive one about Jesus. We've seen the lion of Judah come. We sometimes sing songs. We'll sing one in a moment that talk about Jesus as a lion. That comes from here, as early as page 42 in the Bible. We're so much further on, but I hope seeing how early this promise was made grows our trust in God, our wonder at our great God. Because actually, when you look at your life honestly, when I look at my life honestly, I deserve the verdict that Reuben and Simeon got. You're fired. You don't deserve blessing, not by God's standards. But extraordinarily, because of Jesus the king, the lion of Judah, who also became a lamb to die on the cross. Because of him, I actually get the verdict of Ephraim. Come and be adopted. Come and experience the full blessing of your heavenly father. Come and have a right relationship with your maker. Come and be part of this great people 
come with the hope of a new creation to come. So then, who on earth can lead us back to the good times? Who could we rely on to lead us back to the good times? I have to say, in terms of the UK political situation, I have no idea. Like, it is a mess, and I don't know who could get us out of it, to be honest. But wonderfully, when it comes to the far, far, far bigger question of how humanity gets right with God, how warring tribes and tongues across the world can actually be united in harmony, or even how this dying globe and these dying bodies can be made into a new heavens and new earth, on those big questions, wonderfully, there's a very simple answer, a very clear answer. It's right here. The leader who can do that is already chosen. Not by public vote, but by God. Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, is a leader we can rely on. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do marvel that you know the end from the beginning. Amazing enough that Genesis could foretell David and his kingdom coming from the tribe of Judah. Far more amazing that you announced your son so early and that he would be our saviour so fully that we can be adopted as your sons. We praise you for the Lord Jesus, the Lion of Judah, our King and our Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.